Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. On this episode, we're talking about how to buy a home with less than 20% down. So if you're in a situation where you can't put 20% down, typically what happens is that you're going to pay some form of mortgage insurance. And that hedges the risk for a bank when they make a loan to you. And and what they do is on top of your mortgage payment, you will pay 03 to 1% of the loan amount. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest online financial advisor. I think that one of the most frequently asked questions that we field is around buying a home, especially for first-time home buyers. And I know a lot of you listening, you really would like to buy a home, but you don't have that 20% down that is often associated with the best interest rates or will get you uh, out of the whole world of PMI, private mortgage insurance. Well, we thought we might bring an expert around to help us untangle all of this. Nicole Hamilton is a tech executive turned mortgage and home ownership expert. She founded a company called Tactile Finance and developed the first digital tools that let people visualize their home ownership outcomes over time without losing any details. And by the way, her real hope is that she wants to put consumers on a level playing field with the professionals who serve them. Nicole's the author of the book, Avoid the Money Pit, Turn Your Home into a Financial Powerhouse. And she is also the founder of another company called Home Ownering. It provides unbiased, independent information for homeowners to get the best financial outcome possible. If you've got a question about buying a home, whether with 10% down, 5% down, or 20% down, or any other financial topic, don't forget, you can always send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And now, let's get to our interview with Nicole Hamilton. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Nicole Hamilton, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you so much, Jill. It's great to be here. I'm feeling great this morning. You are? Fantastic. We like to start the program with a very important question. You ready? Yes. What's the best financial or career decision that you've ever made? Oof, that's a tough one. I would have to say the best... The best financial decision that I made um, was actually buying buying a home, I would say. You're on the program today because you're an expert. And you're an expert about home financing and essentially anything to do with your house and money, right? That, yes. That's a, yeah, wait. that's fair. Okay. And um, one of the things you have on your book, Avoid the Money Pit, Turn Your Home into a Financial Powerhouse, is a little factoid that I love. Over 80% of homeowners have most of their net worth in their homes. Less than a quarter feel confident that they will get a great financial outcome. Why do you think that is? I think that homeownership is tricky on a lot of levels. And one of the primary reasons is because um, the financing of a home is tricky. And the way that you finance your home does determine to a great degree your outcome. There's also other aspects uh, such as appreciation. Certain areas don't appreciate as much. Appreciation isn't that well understood. Mm-hmm. So the mechanics of how you get a good result with home ownership is sometimes a little hit and miss for people. When home purchasing sort of 
came into the frenzied state leading up to the financial crisis, you could essentially buy a house with zero money down, Mm -hmm. right? You have a heartbeat, we'll give you a mortgage, don't worry about it. And since the financial crisis, when people got wiped out and learned tons of lessons, uh, I field a lot of questions with people who will say, I'm putting 50% down. I'm putting more money down. I never want something bad to happen to me again. What is the sweet spot? We know that a conventional loan is when you put 20% down. What do you think is the sweet spot? What should people be thinking about when they try to determine whether or not to put more than that 20% down or put just that 20% down? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a great question. I think it really comes down to individual financial situation, but there are some guidelines, I would say, um, one of which is similar to investing, where what's your risk threshold, right? Um, And also, how much money do you have overall? If I've seen, you know, very wealthy people put down 50% on a home, Um, you know, clearly for most of Americans, that's not not possible, especially with real estate prices these days. So there's a comfort that you need to sort of think about in terms of how much you feel comfortable having in the bank that's, that's, you know, that's liquid is something that you can access versus, you know, illiquid, which is in a home. And I think it can be a very powerful investing strategy to have money in your home, but uh, it really depends on your individual situation. How did this 20% number become the standard bearer? Do you know? Um, Well, I do know that uh, real estate prices fluctuate, home values fluctuate, and 20% is for lenders a threshold where their risk is reduced. So if prices drop, if you're a bank, um, you want to have some hedge so that your, your uh, your money is protected. And so that's where the 20% comes in. And that's why if you put less than 20% down, that's considered riskier for a bank and can end up costing you more in terms of interest rates or other fees. Okay, so let's talk about not having in that 20% down. And so I'd love the point, by the way, that you just made, which is that 20% down is to protect the bank, not you. Yes. That has nothing to do with you, really, right? Well, there are some benefits. So, so for example, the pros of putting 20% down, one is that you get lower mortgage rates. That's good. That's very good. One is that you get less fees. That's also good. Right. Um, it's easier to refinance. So if you go to refinance and you don't have 20% in your home, you could find it difficult to take advantage of lower fees or other aspects of refinancing. The other point, which I think is probably most important, is it's easier to move if you have to. Because Mm. if you buy a home with less than 20% down, or let's say 5%, and the market were to drop significantly, you're really stuck in the house. And we saw that after the crash, you know, where people, you know, and then you're, you know, what do you do if you have another job, you know, and you need to move, you're unable to have that flexibility. Right. And that mobility was, you're right, that was a real inhibiting factor where someone could say, I lost my job here, but I could move over here to get one, but I can't sell my house. So I'm tied to this place. Right. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Housing prices have been going up pretty dramatically. There's just not a lot of inventory. We've talked about that on this program. We hear it from people who live in these many coastal towns where prices are going kind of bananas. Mm -hmm. And they say, I cannot get 20% down. I can't do it. And I'm afraid the longer I wait, 
I will get keep getting priced out of the market. So what happens when you only can put down say 10%? Explain the process and let's be let's call this the uh, under the title of everything you need to know about PMI. Okay, so if you I mean there are a lot of products available uh, out there for people who can't put 20% down. Um, there's 3% down, there's FHA loans, which are government-backed loans. Um, and so there there are options out there. So if you're in a situation where you can't put 20% down, typically what happens is that you're going to pay some form of mortgage insurance. And the, and the acronym you just <laughs> mentioned is PMI, which means private mortgage insurance. And that hedges the risk for a bank when they make a loan to you. And and what they do is on top of your mortgage payment, you will pay 0.3 to 1% of the loan amount. And it depends very much on the rate that you pay depends on the size of the down payment, your credit score, and the particular insurer. And there may even be some regional differences okay, as so well. Okay, so 0.3 mm-hmm. up to a full percentage point yes. of the loan. Right. Okay. So let's back up a second. So can I shop around for PMI or is it something that is going to be compulsory by my by the primary lender? So the lender, as far as I know, the lender decides the company that is going to insure the loan. But the PMI companies rel- are relatively similar. So you okay. won't find a great variation. It's, it's generally in this pretty tight range. I'm always worried about PMI because it feels to me like it's just an added expense. Am I looking at it the wrong way? I mean, there is this concern that market is going to get away from someone. Yeah. So when when should you pay PMI? When should you just wait? Yeah, well, that is, I mean, that's what strikes at the heart of one of the most confusing things as a consumer. You know, there here's this extra fee. You know, you don't want to pay this extra fee. But I think the way to look at it is there there are loans that don't require PMI, but they then roll the, um, the risk into the interest rate. So there's a lot of kind of tricky maneuvering that that uh, you can find in the mortgage industry. So what what the best way to compare is really to look at your total costs. Like take two loans, take one with with PMI, one where you're paying you know 20 percent, one where you know it's a loan that rolls the risk into the interest rate, and just do a financial analysis. How much are you putting down? How much are you paying per month? You know, how long do you intend to stay in the house? What's the total cost that you're going to pay? Um, and there's another piece to it, which is really important to consider, which is that PMI comes off the loan. You will stop paying PMI when you've paid down your principal up to that 20% threshold. When you have 20% equity in your home, you can request, it's called um, borrower re- requested removal of PMI at 80%, so 20% equity. And unlike rolling it into an interest rate, that then disappears. So that that's an interesting thing, because when you first said roll it into the interest rate, I thought, oh, great, then I know that that's deductible and that's easy. But then you don't have the opportunity to peel it away. Right. And just remember, everyone, when you're listening to this, you say, well, I'm never going to make all these payments. How can I do that? But if your house appreciates, that's another way that you could get 20% equity. So someone who bought a house in 2012 here in 2018 may find that 
the market has helped you. Mm-hmm. And so you and I and, you know, I there is some thought and I know that we've gotten questions about this that, well, isn't PMI removal an automatic? Isn't it compulsory for the mortgage company to take that PMI off when my equity is at 80, you know, when I have 20, at least 20% equity? How does that work? Yes. So that's, uh, there's actually in the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the, the website is cfpb.gov, and they have a guideline. It's easy to Google for. And it specifies exactly how PMI should be removed. And so if it's lender requested, you can contact your servicer in writing and say, I'm at the 80% threshold. I request that my PMI is removed. But at 78%, so if you have 22%, so what this means is the value of your home when you purchased it, the appraised value, when your equity reaches the 22% of that amount, um, it should automatically be removed. And that's an automated process. Um, And it does not matter if your home value has declined in the automatic removal. They are, by law, required to remove it. So it's worth keeping an eye on Mm. because it's not always the case that mortgage companies behave the way they're supposed to behave. uh, (laughs) Really? That's a, that there's our breaking news for this. So what's the difference between using a standard lender bank blankety blank, right? That, that where you borrow money and pay PMI versus an FHA loan so an FHA loan and um, and there's there's different types of FHA loans you can actually put different amounts down and then there are different levels of, of fees so I'll give you I'll give you sort of a broad brush stroke so FHA loans are loans where you can put down 3.5%. The lowest amount you can put down is 3.5%. And then you're going to have what's called an upfront premium, which is 1.75% of the loan amount. Um, And that is paid either upfront, as the name suggests, but is often rolled into the loan amount, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm. Um, And then you're also going to pay something called MIP, which stands for mortgage insurance premium, which is similar to PMI, and, and it, it has its own schedule. I have an FHA loan. I have this upfront cost. Maybe I have this sort of quasi sort of PMI-ish thing. Mm-hmm. And if I want to refinance, there are separate rules around this, correct? For a refinance, as far as I know, and I'm less of an expert in the FHA loans as I am in the in the non-government loans, but... Um, as far as I know, you are completely able to refinance out of an FHA, just like a regular loan. You pay it off. Mm-hmm. Um, what a refinance effectively is, is paying off the original mortgage and getting a brand new mortgage. Mm-hmm. Can you ha- Do you go through the same process to remove that PMI-esque thing that's not really PMI with an, a, an FHA loan? In other words, like what happens when you have 20% equity in an FHA loan? So uh, so this is where we have to go to the table because FHAs, they have different 
rules, slightly different fees depending on the amount that you put down and also the amount that you borrow. So mm-hmm. I, I believe the cutoff now is $649,000. Below that, you get a different table, and above that, you get a slightly different table. Mm-hmm. But I believe to remove the MIP, which is the mortgage premium for the FHA loan, it's around 11 years out. So what do you think people are doing incorrectly when it comes to their looking at their house as an asset? That's a big subject. Don't you um, think? I mean, it's like a whole <laughs> nother show, but I like it. So, yeah. I mean, I think that people tend to think of their home as an appreciating asset, even though we've just gone through a horrible housing crisis, and they confuse what is just the natural pace of inflation and what happens to housing. And, and they, they say things like this. My mother bought her house for $50,000 and we sold it for a million. It's the best investment she ever made. And then I said, well, if your mother took the same $50,000 and had a balanced portfolio, she'd have more money. And they don't want to believe that. Mm-hmm. That said, I also think that people tend to look at their homes as this retirement planning asset that I just don't think ever comes to fruition in in most cases. I think it's really hard to downsize is what Mm -hmm. I think. I think that many people are sort of stuck in their communities because, not stuck, they want to stay in their communities because their kids are there, their grandkids are there, their friends are there. And then when they look to sell their home, if you've got that million dollar house, you look around and you say, oh, I want to live in a great, easy condo. And you find like, hey, it's $800,000 and the fees for maintaining that are pretty much the same with the fees or maybe even more than the fees for me maintaining my home. And so I would suggest that that many people are looking at that house too much as a retirement asset when I don't think it's going to end up being one. Mm -hmm. Now it's your turn. So on your first question, I think that the biggest sort of mistake or opportunity actually with home ownership is to be aware of how much equity you have in your house because that's ultimately your money, even though it's not liquid. And a lot of the decisions that you make, including refinancing, taking home equity loans, even things around appreciation and selling your house that you want to be aware of that equity and it's as we mentioned earlier for most people it's the majority of your net worth that's mm-hmm. a huge thing but right. yet you a lot of people don't know how to access that information um, the other point that you made about you know should you put should you buy a home or put that money in the stock market that's a that's sort of an age old thing and uh, schiller i think uh, was the one who sort of wrote this paper in the early 2000s about you know the returns on the stock market versus um real estate and i would say that it's it's two pieces there's one is it is a, an emotional commitment. It's an emotional decision. It's a commitment. It's a lifestyle. You know, those are all things about home ownership. Um, It's also a forced savings mechanism. So I think Mm. for, you know, for a lot of wealthy people who are in, you know, sort of a higher income bracket, um, you may have a lot more of your money in investments and then less in your home. And you have the ability to pay into your investments every every uh, month. And uh, that's not the case for a lot of people. So homeownership is a massive wealth builder for that portion of the population that doesn't necessarily save money because you're paying down your mortgage over time. I wonder if you think that When you say having a house is a way to have wealth accumulation, 
And I wonder if you think that it's also a way, you know, I know that the, the tax code is, is unfairly treats renters, but that it, it, it's also a way that you can build wealth generationally versus mm-hmm. just for yourself in your life. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, there's some great research uh, that came out of Harvard. They, they're, uh, you know, they do a lot of housing studies, and that's one of the findings is that there's intergenerational wealth building that comes from home ownership, and also interestingly, um, higher education benefits. So if you take the same socioeconomic groups, mm-hmm. and and one is a homeowner, one group are homeowners, and the other group are not. Um, that you'll see higher education being achieved in that homeowner group. And I don't know the reason for that, but that was one of the findings Hmm. in one of the studies I looked at for my book. Um, One other benefit uh, to homeownership is we're in a period right now where rents are really skyrocketing. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny (laughs) thing because there was a period of time where renting was so much cheaper than owning in a lot of different areas. Not everywhere, but in a lot of areas. And I always loved that um, New York Times has a rent versus buy calculator, which I think is a fun thing. It's really a good one. Right? It's fun to play with that. It's an excellent tool. Not only are rents rising, they're rising in areas that got hammered by the housing crisis. So, you know, because all these private equity firms went out and they bought the houses and then they said, oh, why are we going to flip them? We can just charge rent to all these poor people who got squeezed out of their homes in the first place. So rents are rising really quickly. Mm -hmm. And if we are going to see a little bit of inflation start to cook, they're going to rise even faster. So another benefit of home ownership. Not that I'm like the biggest homeowner fan in the universe. I don't want I'm not a shill for the industry. No. But but another nice thing is that when you have a fixed rate mortgage, it's fixed. That's exactly right. And that's the point I was gonna make is that, you know, for example, I I, I rented for a few years in between owning homes in New York and during that period, my rent would rise, you know, 10, 10% a year um, in New York City. It's this hyper, you know, hyper fast rent price growth. And if you get a 30-year fixed mortgage, your number is fixed for 30 years. So you're paying the same amount every month for 30 years. Last time I said this on the show, someone said, yeah, but my taxes go up. I'm like, okay the principal and interest payments are fixed. How do you feel about adjustable rate loans? What's your view on them? And how do you kind of put that into the the decision-making process on homeownership? Adjustable rate loans are an amazing product if you do not plan to stay in the home past the adjustment date, which a lot of people do move within, let's say, seven years. Mm -hmm. And if you move within seven years, you have this incredible benefit of this incredibly low rate, which is below the, the fixed rate. Um, And so that's a no-brainer to me if you're planning to do that. The trick is that if, you know, you're you're subject to rising rates, like now we're in a rising rate environment. And so people who got adjustable rate mortgages, let's say in 2007, Mm -hmm. um, they have seen no adjustments because their rates actually went down because they can adjust down as well. And now they're starting to rise. So the important thing to know if you have an adjustable rate mortgage is that you want to make sure that you have the income, and it's hard to predict for the future that you'll have the income to refinance, Mm -hmm. and also the equity in your home to be able to get out of it. That's really the key. Because if you don't have those, no one can predict interest rates. Um, And so it's incredibly important to hedge that by 
making sure that you're in the financial position to get out of that loan. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Nicole Hamilton in just a minute. But, you know, buying a home, it's a huge deal. As Nicole said, it really ends up being the largest transaction you make in your life for many decades to come. And it's got to be part of an overall plan. And if you don't have a plan yet, maybe it's time to figure out what that plan should be. And that is where our sponsor, Betterment, comes into the picture the largest independent online financial advisor. And what they really have done is they've designed a platform that helps customers build wealth. And building wealth, part of that is buying a house. It's planning for retirement. It's achieving your overall financial goals. Betterment's mission is to help customers make the most of their money. One way they do that is by offering personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or get the retirement you want. And don't forget, Betterment is a fiduciary. They make recommendations in their clients' best interest. They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds. They don't have their own investment products to sell. Better off listeners... You can get up to one year managed free. Just go to Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Nicole Hamilton. What is the big mistake that people are making around refinancing right now? Well, so I think I mentioned I started a company called Tactile Finance in 2012, and that modeled Um, financial outcomes visually for consumers. And um, one of the fascinating findings about that was that when you refinance, particularly when you're several years down the line, let's say 15 years or 10 to 15 years, you are at a point in your amortization where you're paying very much less interest than in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And when you go to refinance, even though your interest rate may be lower, you go all the way back to the beginning of your amortization and you actually pay more in interest than Mm. you would if you kept your loan. Wow. It's this an interesting dynamic that is no one will tell you about from the mortgage world because they make money refinancing. But what we found is that there's probably up to 30% of refinances are not in the best interest of the consumer. Wow. Because you're eroding your equity even though you think your rate is lower. That's amazing. Yeah. There's some other mechanics such as if you're 10 years into your mortgage or 15 years into your mortgage, you have a much smaller um, remaining loan balance. So you can take that and then have pay much smaller, a much smaller payment on that. But it's just there's this extra um, component, which is equity. So it's your equity component. So the best thing to do when you think about a refinance is to pay attention to how much equity you would have in your house if you didn't refinance and also if you do refinance. How can we do that? Have you made that easy? Should I go to Tactile Finance or your other website, homeownering.com? Yes, so that will be a product that we'll be rolling out on homeownering, which is our findings from the mortgage world. And that's interesting. (laughs) Um, About making it easy for consumers to visualize what, what to do. I think that's a great idea because, I mean, I'm a numerical person and I I like, you know, give me a spreadsheet any day. But I think the vast majority of humanity 
likes that visualization. So I think that's wonderful. I'm wondering how you feel about terms of loans. Another thing that we'll often hear about from somebody is they'll say, I'm refinancing my loan. I'm five years in, let's say. And I want to refi in from a 30 to a 15. What should that person who's just kind of freaked out about the idea of having a loan for 30 years, what should that person be thinking about? Well, like all home ownership decisions, it depends on your unique situation. So, you know, if you're in a situation where you have the money to um, take a shorter loan and pay less interest, often that's a, a good thing to do. Um, a lot of people, it can be also an emotional decision or a retirement planning decision where you want to get rid of your debt before you retire, right? It makes you feel good right. to you know, not have this, and you don't know what the future will bring. Although, and, as you said before, that most people don't have the choice. A lot of people don't have the choice. That's correct. But again, I would say with any refinance is to... Often the the advice is to look at the at the interest rate and also the total payment and see if you can afford it. And I would just urge everyone to consider the equity component as well. What's the downside? If I I always like to tell people, especially young people who are going to have kids and have a lot of expenses, then they don't really don't know what the future is going to hold. They they want to be. Well, I don't want to have this. I don't want to have a thirty year mortgage. I said, well, have a thirty year mortgage. And if in fifteen years, you are fantastic and everything's great, then you can pay that thing down faster. Is there mm-hmm. any downside to paying it down faster than the 30 years, especially once you're in the principal portion? No. In fact, it's a strategy that some people use to actually take a completely interest-only loan, which aren't available to all of us um, at a low rate, really low rate, and then just pay the principal. So, you know, there's a lot of, that's a way that you can pay an incredibly low interest rate and also just pay down your loan by just making big lump sums into it. And I think there's a lot of creative strategies like this that are available to homeowners. Um, One thing I would caution people about is when you make an extra principal payment, you have to check the next statement and make sure that 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 your loan amount was reduced by that exact amount because what happens is sometimes the mortgage in, mortgage company will apply it wrong and then you're just wasting your money and that's actually in the CFPB database there are a lot of complaints yeah you're right I I, I I love that database I hope it still stays I, I mean do too. Maybe... I downloaded the whole thing oh you're so funny <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about you and how did you get into this So I have been in technology for years in various industries. I used to run a data analytics company. And then in about 2008 or 9, I got taken advantage of in a mortgage. What? (laughs) You did smarty pants like you? I know. And it was so infuriating. And it was during the crash when... Um, you know, we, my husband and I lost part of our income and it was a very, very stressful time. And, um, and we had a lot of money in our, in our homes. And, um, and I was treated very badly by the mortgage person. It was just so infuriating. And meanwhile, all these people were losing their homes and getting, you know, having these loans that they didn't understand and couldn't afford. And I just thought there's too much power in this 
in this industry, there's too much opacity. You know, mm-hmm. there's it's like this critically important thing for all of us. I mean, so many people have so much money in it, and it just doesn't make sense that there's not a way to for normal folks like me and you, you know, to access this information in a way that empowers us. So I got completely obsessed. And I'm not even as only as a data <laughs> analytics expert could be <laughs> completely. And I'm still obsessed with the mortgage industry and home ownership. It's it's vast and deep and wide, and um, there's so much complexity there. And um, and I just got really um, determined, and and um, I've been working in that space now since 2011. So. That's awesome. Yeah. When you're looking at the industry, do you think there needs to be more oversight, or um, is there is it a regulatory answer, or is it just an education empowerment answer? Well, it's it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a proponent for overregulation, um, but I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, should people be able to take advantage of other people? That's like kind of an open question, right? So, so the deceptive language that can be introduced into loan documents and things like that, a lot of that was taken care of um, in the Dodd-Frank CFPB process. I think those things are critical to... Um, you know, society functioning well and people, you know, being able to retain their money if if things are clear for them to understand. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I sit. Okay, It needs to be clear. There needs to be um, a penalty for the bad actors. And that helps the rest of the industry because the vast majority of mortgage professionals, you know, they got a bad rap, but I worked with them for many years um, in my business, and they they are committed to getting people in homes they like, you know, their jobs mm-hmm. to get satisfying to help someone get in a home that they love. Um, so that sort of level of oversight, where it's clear what you're signing up for, and there's there's a penalty if you're a bad actor, it creates a very healthy industry, I believe. Before we finish up, I started the program asking you what was your best financial or career decision and now I want to know what is your worst hmm I don't know I don't have any regrets I'm that's like, so nice you know often yeah. when we ask this question for a guest the guest will say I should have bought the blankety blank house or yeah. I should have bought this I should have done that but that's like a hindsight no, question I, that's I not a mistake say, what what I would say one thing that I that I used to do at a certain point in my life was I wasn't aware of like credit card interest rates. And once you sort of track them and, you know, you get, you know, you, you sort of are more aware of, of the interest that you're paying and how much actually latitude you have to adjust it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just by calling your company after you get a late fee, let's say, oops, you forgot by a day to pay your bill. Call them up and just say, can you remove that? And they will. Yeah, they're like, oh, you've been a you've been a great card member since 1904. Great. Or I have this other card and I'm paying you know, 12% interest rate and you're charging me 15, I would like you to charge me 12. Okay. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to just save money that just takes the smallest bit of effort. Well, um, I so appreciate you taking the very big effort because you took a long subway ride here, didn't you? I did. How long did it take? It took about an hour. Whoa. Mark, send her a car. (laughs) So we had a client who said, can you send me a car? And Mark said, we don't do cars. 
We, uh, you know, we're a radio show. Yeah. We're a podcast. It's New York you know. City, baby. It's not that hard to get. That's anywhere. right. That's right. Although from one point in Brooklyn all the way to the west side of Manhattan can yeah. be a little bit of a thorny trip. So yeah. we so appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. And Nicole Hamilton, her website, homeownering.com and Tactile Finance. She's the founder, CEO, president. I told her the last title she should add is uh, the manager of the intramural softball team. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. This is when we get to find out what's going on in your financial lives and how we might be able to help you out. You've got two chances to uh, talk to us. Every Tuesday, we drop the Better Off bonus call of the week. Thursdays after we do the interview, we've got the listener question of the week. Either way, we'll get you on the air. We'll try to help you out. Just email us, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And today we've got Nick, who is on the line from Washington State. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. What can I do for you? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I had a couple questions uh, regarding my retirement situation and what my long-term plan is. Um, I figured I'd call in because my situation is probably similar to a lot of people my age. Fantastic. So what is that age? I am 35. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm married about five years. We have... Uh, we have a 14-year-old son who's uh, from my wife's previous marriage, but he's ours now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a baby on the way. Wow, congratulations. Well, thank you. All right. Okay, so what's going on in your financial life that I can help you out with? All right, so my company uh, offers some retirement options, um, and they offer a 3% match up to, oh, excuse me, they offer me a 100% match up to 3%, and then they give me um, a half, a uh, 50% on the next 1%. So okay. they'll kick in a total of, what, three and a half? Yep. What should I be doing with the rest that I'm saving on for, you know, off the top for myself? Okay, first of all, let's go backwards for a second. So you're married. How much do you earn? About 72000 and does your wife work at home, or is she working out there in the world and earning money as well? She's a stay-at-home mom right now. Okay. How's the cash flow on the seventy-two grand a year? It's tight, to tight. be honest. It's yeah. Tight. Okay. We're looking to get more, but um, you know, we make it by. Okay. And uh, you guys rent or you own right now? We rent. We rent a house for about oh, I don't know, fourteen fifty a month. Oof, that's good rent. It's a good. It is. That's great. Okay, how much are you contributing right now in terms uh, of that total? Total of about ten percent. Okay. Wow. So you're putting ten percent away on seventy-two grand. That's awesome. We try. Yeah. That's great. Okay. How much more do you think you have to squeeze out of it beyond that that ten percent? I mean, that sounds like a good number coming out of a seventy-two thousand dollar a year income. Um. I mean, at the most right now, I'd probably squeeze another percent out, but about it. Okay. So do you have any debt that's outstanding? Oh, I've got a car loan, you know, I don't know, 20-something thousand, 25,000, 22,000. Uh-huh. And, um, other than that, no, not, not, not any real debt. Um, what, what's the rate on that car loan? Oh, it's probably, what, three, 
three and a half percent, four percent. Okay. How about just plain old cash reserves, like money in the bank? That's a good question. That's low. We probably only have um, around two thousand dollars cash at the you know. Okay. So. So when you say you have an extra percent, what I want to tell you is whatever extra money you have that you can squeeze out of the cash flow should go into savings. You've got to beef up those savings. And it has everything to do with, you know, making sure you have an emergency reserve fund, but also that you have a baby on the way. I've heard those can be very expensive endeavors, those babies. (laughs) I've heard the same thing. Uh Uh-huh. So whatever money you have extra, and if anyone says, oh, we really want to, like, you know, give you money for the kid or whatever, like, just sock it away in savings right now. Don't increase your retirement funding until we get that extra money saved up. And once you have that extra money saved up, like, presuming you live on, I don't know, five grand a month, maybe, four grand a month. Um, you know, we need to get you six months of living expenses in that account because I don't know how yeah. how secure is your job right now. Uh, pretty secure. Okay. Uh, to be honest, I don't expect things to drastically change at all. Okay, great. So keep the ten percent. That's great. Every time you get a raise, just put more money into your savings account. Once that is you know beefed up a little bit, you're gonna start to maybe pay down the car loan a little more aggressively and see how it goes. That's a perfect, really is like a perfect place for you guys to be. Don't go nuts on the retirement stuff because in some, you know, it it really is important to protect yourselves. You know, it really is that that I know it's a boring piece of advice, but it actually works. Okay. So we're looking at right around 25,000 in a savings account to be as an emergency fund. You right? got it. That's your that okay. is your goal exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a goal. I can I can start making it happen. One one more quick question. Sure. Has to do with the the two retirement options that my company does offer. So one of them is like the traditional four hundred one k, and then the other option is is a Roth. Mm-hmm. So it's you know pre tax versus post tax. So. I can split up contributions uh, however I want between mm. those two. Should I? All Roth. All Roth. You're all Roth all the time. You're in the 12% tax bracket right now. That is incredibly low. You want to actually prepay the tax on your retirement plan assets right now because, number one, if your tax bracket goes up in the future, you will have already paid your tax. And number two, I just don't ever see you going below 12% ever. Ever, ever, ever. Make it all Roth contributions. Got it. And it's all in like a target date fund, which a eh, little proprietary, a little bit. Mm, I prefer, you know, total index funds, but I'm not sure there's an option to do that. Who so. runs Who runs the plan right now? Uh, John Hancock. Inside that John Hancock fund, it, how much money do you have total right now in the retirement account? Oh, I don't know, 15 grand. So, I mean, what you could do is you could, I'm sure that if there's a stock index fund inside of the plan, you can say put 10 grand in the stock index fund and put five grand in a bond index fund and go to sleep at night. And now you've just created your own target date fund. Got it. Done? I like it. Our work is done, Nick. I am very happy. Good luck. When you name that child little baby Jill, uh, just send me a picture, okay? (laughs) 
It might be more like a Jason. Okay, I understand. You can take, or it could be Mark after the best producer in the world, Mark. It it could be something like that, yeah. All right, good luck. Thank you so much for calling. No, thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to our guest, Nicole Hamilton, and our caller, Nick. New episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday, and we'd love for you to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or you can go to my website, jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer in the world. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.